This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. So many Greek women and men migrated to Australia in the post-war years, in the 50s and 60s, and each of them have stories to tell of broken hearts and cultural dislocation, joy and new beginnings. And this week, a play is opening that's going to tell some of those stories. Um, Taxi is being performed, and it explores the odyssey of Greek migrant women in those years. Um, we have Helen Yotas patterson in the studio. She created the play, and we also have performer Artemis Ioannidis with us as well. And thank you both for coming in, and what a fantastic fantastic subject to look at for a play Um, and I mean there's so much to speak about but maybe we can start with your background Helen because it really informed the writing of this play I understand. Yeah well um, uh, my dad came from a tiny island in uh, the Vodaganisa and there's a little group of islands near Turkey. Um, He came in 1964 and my mum Mary came um, in 1951 from Cyprus so um, um, uh, and we're a, we're a fairly Greek family, I would say. Very loud, very noisy, very passionate. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and um, Artemis is was uh, born here. Yep, I was born here. Uh, my dad came in 1972 uh, to study. My mum came in 76, and they met here. Um, and my parents decided to move back to Greece, actually. So in 98, when I was seven. Um, We moved back to Greece. I grew up there and I came back five years ago. So I'm kind of part of the new wave of Greek immigrants who have come here and all of those stories are are shared from from the women back then, the stories that we're telling now and so many immigrants from Greece and from so many other countries who are coming to Australia and to all the other places in the world. And I mean the stories that you tell in in this um, uh, are very individual, but you've somehow pulled them together into a play. How did you how did you do that, Helen? Well, I I, I interviewed a lot of women, and it, and it was kind of addictive and also incredibly easy. If you're stand still long enough in Melbourne, you're bound to hear a Greek accent. So um, you know, I found late, I work in a little shop in Yarraville, and I called Marita's, and there were lots of Greek women would just come in there and hear their accident. Oh, so where are you from? And so what happened on the ship? And and then start a conversation. And I, I collected a lot of interview material just like that through conversation with people and through family members and then I I, I, um, I no one story is one person's I've sort of drawn a bit from there a bit from there because a lot of family secrets were told to me as well some things that nobody no, knows about and they wanted their identity protected so um, I've blended a lot of them together aside from my two grandmothers they're purely Eleni and Yuria, my two grandmothers. Yeah, so um, it was an amazing experience and I, um, I learnt some incredible things about resilience and love and courage. And you asked um, three questions in particular. Why did you leave? What happened on the ship? And how did you feel when you arrived? And it's interesting, and that middle question interested me because many of these women came by boat. Well, that's one of that's all of them came by boat um, of the interviewees, um, and it's incredible because it's a, it's a really long journey, and a, a lot of them had to make that huge adjustment in that in that six weeks 
on the ship. So, you know, there are some that were... One lady I interviewed was 15. She had her 16th birthday on the ship and all she had was a tiny little black and white photograph of the man that she was met, meant to meet and marry. He was double her age. You can just imagine, you know, she'd never met anyone new in her life before. Every, every person she'd ever met, she was born in the same village and she just expected to live her life there. So if you can just imagine that huge adjustment you'd have to take between the anticipation yeah. and the anticipation being on the and ship and not knowing what yeah. you're going to... Yeah. But then there are other ladies who are like, oh, you know, there was a pool, you know. I bought a bikini and there was no one there to tell me not to wear the bikini. So I was so happy I got to go in the pool with a bikini. So, <laughs> so how did you kind of start to weave these stories into a, a theatre piece? Well, I, I kind of made some decisions about the, I, I, about the, the kind of stories I wanted to tell. So I, I chose um, brides, mothers and free spirits, so people that were kind of forced to come here, women that when I need more from my life and made the decision to migrate and the mothers that brought their children here because they were, well for various reasons but usually poverty and hunger you know, coming to come to a new country um, and it's, it's everything's kind of divided in three so number three is very important to Greek people, it's the Aya the other, the Father, Son and Holy Spirit <laughs> everything's divided into three so just it, wor- it works in that way, yep. And so, Artemis, having sort of been in a, a later wave of, of Greek migrants, I suppose, do you um, easily sort of identify with the, the stories of those who came earlier? I think that the essence of the stories um, about, you know, going somewhere new, hope, uh, working through the difficulty of feeling displaced, cultural identity, all of those things... Um, are very current and they don't change and I think they're a universal um, issue and this this play really brings up those conversations and it's it's really important to me to be a part of that. And I mean your background is quite interesting under this in that your parents were here already, you were born here, returned to Greece, came back to Australia and I, I wonder at that, um, you've got a bit of a foot in both camps of the, the post-war migration Absolutely. and the more recent migration which is actually um, happening again from Greece to Australia for various reasons. Um, what's the connection between those two communities? I imagine they're quite distinctive. Well, it, it is. Um, it's, a, it's a strange kind of feeling because I do feel like I have a Greek-Australian heritage that comes from my parents' history being here um, and spending 30 years here um, and making their lives kind of as part of that earlier Greek community. Um, And making that connection, I think, is really important, allowing the new Greek immigrants to inform the old, the old Greek immigrants kind of welcoming the new immigrants with open arms. Um, I think it's it's a really special thing and we're part of a... It's happening at a very special time, I think, for the Greek community and for immigration in general. In general. And so the, the play sort of officially kicks off uh, this week, but has the women whose stories you um, kind of adapted seen it yet? And, and if so, how did a they respond? Have, a few have, and, and, and it's interesting um, how, um, how moved they are by it. 
it's um, it's kind of an incredible experience because you come off stage. I, I mean, I've been an actor and a singer for a long time, but I've never kind of had this kind of reaction before. They grab me, they grab you, they hold you, they kiss you, they stroke your hair. It's like I, I, I truly, I truly feel like a vessel, you know, like a uh, like a. I'm carrying a, I'm carrying this message, and it feels so important. It feels, it feels so uh, right, um, and and I, you know I, I feel kind of exposed and raw and kind of emotional about the whole thing. It's um, it's an it's been an incredible experience. Yeah, they just. They're so, it's so, it's just the right time, you know, they've worked so hard and you don't have a lot of time to think when you work like that and they're all reaching their, you know, their late 60s and their early 70s and they're tired, you know, and they're tired and they're sitting down and then they finally have the space to think about what's happened to them, you know, and um, it's, it's, it's so... It's so amazing how you can leave, live three or four lives in one but never really have the time to think about it, you know? So um, it feels uh, incredibly special. And, I mean, you tell the, the story of, of women, Greek women, and I wonder, is that story quite distinctive to the story of the men? It is. It absolutely is. And I've, I've just started interviewing men because I'm planning on doing um, a male version of this piece. Um, and uh, it is so incredibly different. And I think that the big difference is choice, you know, the men kind of felt empowered to choose, but a lot of these women simply had no choice. A lot of because of a lot of women had to come out here because their parents didn't have enough money for a dowry. So having not having enough money for a dowry means you don't get married, you don't have a family, you are basically a, a lone figure. So um, they quite often had to come out here just so they could lead a life with children and husband and so yeah choice being the massive difference yeah and that must be interesting for you Artemis because I imagine your um, returning to Australia is, is quite different to that to that experience yes I mean so many of the young people who are coming from Greece now are coming because of the crisis um, I didn't I came by choice. I came here to study um, acting because I wanted to study in English and I kind of already had a partial sense of home in Australia. Um, but, yeah, the, the circumstances are kind of different, but they're kind of the same for a lot of people in different ways. I mean, you know, you get on a plane now. I mean, it's 24 hours, but it's still a plane. Um, and, and you can go back. And you can go back. And you can go back. Yeah. And you can Skype your family and you can do all these things. It, it is much easier. But I think that the, the personal change is is still massive, you know. You can only compare it to what you know. Mm. And, I mean, you, you tell, you've told a story um, before, Helen, about uh, a woman who was leaving and her father was chasing the boat in a boat. Yes. Tell us that story because it's quite heartbreaking. <laughs> it is quite heartbreaking. So um, this uh, this um, young woman wanted to come to Australia because she wanted more from her life and, again, she 
knew she wasn't going to be able to get married because there was no dowry for her. So she begged her father to allow her to come to Australia and when they got to the port, he tried to tear the papers out of her hands. He didn't want her to leave. And um, he somehow managed to hire a little boat to follow the ship. He was calling her name from the little boat at the top of his lungs with his arms outstretched as if, you know, he could will her onto the little boat with him. Um, and she never got to see her father again because um, she didn't get to go back home for another 20 years. So it's, it's heartbreaking. A friend of mine also told me this story about his grandmother, how she has no concept of where Australia is. And they were driving in the car and she, they were driving to Athens and she said to her son, son, if you, if you put on the indicator and you went that way, all the way, would we get to Australia? Would we get to see their spinner? Would we get to see her again? She had no concept of how far away it was, only that she hadn't seen her child and she thought maybe we could drive there. You know, it's, it's, it's impossible. As a mother, it's impossible to imagine never seeing your child again, you know. And it's such, I mean, it is so different nowadays, as, as you say, Artemis, with Skype, with being easily sort of in contact with, with family in most circumstances. But what about when the women arrived in Australia? Because obviously in the post-war years, we weren't the most sort of welcoming country for migrants coming from Europe. Did they speak much about that in your discussions with them? I think that the, what was really great about that time was um, there were a lot of uh, there's a lot of help on the ground. There were boarding houses that, you know, if you when you arrived in Australia, there was a boarding house. There was one in Footscray, one in Fitzroy, one in Collingwood. You arrived, there's a boarding house. You go and you you find your feet. They help you find a job. Um, you find a job. You know, the, while there wasn't that the outside influence from the inside, they were all helping each other out. I know there's a good job over here, Jimmy, come on, let's go. And they go to the factory and he goes with his friend and they get him a job and, you know, that's just the way it was. And, like, even at my my grandmother, she lived in a little village. When she came to Footscray, she made her village. So she had a little house. She went down Barclay Street and back and everybody came to her house. There's always somebody knocking on the door and suddenly the house is flooded with people and you're all sitting and talking and... It, it, you know, they created their own village wherever they went. I guess that's... And you're right, you know, the, the racism is was difficult to deal with and people thinking you're stupid because you don't speak English and all that, but... Yeah. And what sort of um, reputation, to, to your knowledge, and maybe for you, Artemis, having lived um, in Greece relatively recently, does Melbourne have? Because we have, I think, the third largest Greek-speaking um, city here in Melbourne outside of Greece. So are people really aware of that when considering Absolutely. getting away from the financial crisis and everything that goes along with Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Um, Greek sort of diaspora all over the world is a is a massive thing in Greece. Everyone's aware of it. Everyone is very kind of welcoming and feel as though the the Greek communities outside of Greece are very much a part of Greece as well. Um, and yeah, it's, it's like I go back, I go back because I go once or twice every year, and I'm always getting marriage proposals. <laughs> <laughs> 
please take me to Melbourne with you. I'll marry you. <laughs> I'll, I'll, um, maybe quickly in the time we've got left, um, tell us a little bit about about the play. How, how, how do you perform it? There's three of you performing. So we have um, Artemis and I play three characters each, three women each, and Maria plays four. And um, there is beautiful... Uh, music that is kind of hand-picked. It's from the era. I I kind of chose it um, because my dad is a passionate music lover. So everything that felt familiar and warm and beautiful and soulful to me and matched the the stories we were telling, I kind of put it in there. And, you know, women sing along. And the last couple of performances that we've done that were just readings, they even jump up and dance. You know, they get up on the stage. They kind of surge at us in a beautiful Greek dancing line. So, um, yeah, so it's, it's basically storytelling, singing, and there's a, there are, um, there are we're three fates of migration, the decision, the journey, and the arrival. So we, in, we, we hark back a little bit to ancient Greek theatre with a Greek chorus that runs through it. So, it, you know... I'm really passionate about it. I worked really hard on it. <laughs> so, you know, come and see it. Really, that sounds like a wonderful performance. And um, Maria Mercedes, uh, Helen Yotis Patterson, and Artemis Ioannidis are the three actors in this. It's uh, Taxidi, an Australian Odyssey. And um, not many of us think about Australia as being a colonial power, more that we're a former British colony. But uh, Australia actually had two colonies for the large part of last century Papua New Guinea and Nauru. And Um, Despite this link, but also the fact that Papua New Guinea is the main recipient of Australian foreign aid, we get very little news of PNG and our social and political links appear to be weakening all the time. But why is this? Uh, Sean Dorney is a journalist and was an ABC correspondent in PNG and he lived there for the better part of 40 years. And uh, now he's a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute and he's written an essay called The Embarrassed Colonialist to try and make sense of our fraught relationship with our nearest neighbour. And he's joining us by phone and it's really great to have you with us Sean and um, we read your essay with great interest and I I think to understand the title we first need a little history lesson from you about um, I suppose the relationship with Australia and PNG and how long it was an Australian colony. Well Australia, uh, the Australian colonies actually, Queensland tried to annex Papua New Guinea back when Queensland was a colony. Uh, The British um, rejected that but then in the 1880s Britain and Germany uh, decided to carve up what hadn't been taken by the Dutch and uh, so the northern part of what is now Papua New Guinea became German New Guinea and the southern part became Papua which uh, after Australian Federation, Australia took control of then uh, we um, took, snapped the um, German New Guinea off the Germans in 1914. It was one of the first actions, actually, of Australian uh, military forces in the First World War, and, in fact, the first two Australians killed in in Australian military uniforms in the First World War were actually killed up in Papua New Guinea in that uh, takeover of German New Guinea. After the war, the First World War, the League of Nations uh, granted Australia a mandate um, over what had been German New Guinea and Australia ran Papua New Guinea as two different colonies um, between the wars but uh, come the Second World War when the Japanese tried to take the whole lot off Australia um, after the war we 
decided to run it as a single colony and it was called the Territory of Papua and New Guinea, although half of it was a United Nations mandate and the other half was um, our colony of Papua. In 1975, though, uh, we saw Papua New Guinea through to independence, and the thrust of, of my paper really is that uh, we seem to have forgotten so much of our history there. Well, that the title of your um, your essay is particularly interesting, The Embarrassed Colonialist. Why are we embarrassed, Sean? Well, um, just uh, something that's happened actually since the paper was uh, delivered, I've had a conversation uh, with one of the people from the Monte Video Maru Association, who's also a member of the Papua New Guinea Association of Australia, and they said both those organisations uh, presented um, uh, applications or, or presented submissions to the Australian History Curriculum uh, review for, for schools in 2010, but the head of the curriculum body um, rejected their submission, saying that they didn't think it should be part of the Australian curriculum, and, and they even were told by uh, the chairman of this body, why should we teach our students about Australia's failed colonialism in Papua New Guinea? Now, the reason I say embarrassed is that we seem to have pushed it out of our mind, and, and one of the um, terms I use is that it's almost as if, you know, having given birth to Papua New Guinea, we, we treat it like an illegitimate child that we throw money at in the hope that it will never come home. And then I um, went to Papua New Guinea as a backpacker in the early 90s and I remember getting on the plane to sort of start my journey and a woman sat next to me and said, is that your mum in the waiting room? And I, and I said, yes. And she said, she's bawling. She thinks that, she was saying that she thinks that you're never going to come home. And I really, and because of the, of you know, the reports we get in Australia are about our lawlessness and, and um, she, you know, she wasn't convinced that I was going to have a good time there. And I had an amazing time in Papua New Guinea as a young traveller. And I'm I, sure you did, and I'm sure you met some very, very accommodating and welcoming people. Well, I think that's also has driven an ongoing interest in, in Papua New Guinea. And so I sort of, I, I read you, I say, with interest, because that is a common worry in Australia, that it's not, um, people aren't comfortable with Papua New Guinea and have a very sort of shallow, I think, understanding of, of the richness of the culture there. And I wonder what's led to that in, in your view. Well, look, Papua New Guinea is not an easy place. Um, the first thing I say to anyone who wants to understand PNG is you've got to realise that uh, you are dealing with a nation made up of 860 different indigenous language groups. And uh, the differences between Papua New Guineans are extremely marked. I mean, if you get someone from Milne Bay and someone from the Highlands, you wouldn't believe they were from the same country. So... You know, we've got this view that, you know, countries should be a bit like Australia. Well, PNG couldn't be more different to Australia. And, um, well, it's, it's, it's a very difficult place to run. There's no doubt that there is a crime issue, uh, especially in the major cities. But as you say, once you get out of Port Moresby and Lay and these places, you actually get to meet you realise that there's a lot more to the country than a little bit of crime.
And you write um, in, in relation to independence in 1975 that, um, in your view, it was perhaps based more on emotion than on, you know, economics or shared experiences, um, you know, with upwards of 800 different uh, language groups um, in the country. Uh, was the, the, the transition to independence done sort of too quickly, in your view, with Australia kind of getting out of there and, and leaving PNG to their own devices? Yeah, well, look, um, decolonisation was sweeping the world in, in the 60s and early 70s. There's probably uh, not much um, chance that we could have delayed independence too much longer. Um, I mean, there were agitations from the PNG side. Uh, Michael Samari's Pangu Party was very keen on getting independence. There was trouble in Bougainville. Um, so Australia was quite happy, I think, to, to, to be shared of the problem. My argument is the preparation started far too late. I mean, un until um, you know, the early 70s, uh, there were still people in Canberra saying Papua New Guinea wouldn't be independent before the year 2000. Well, it came in a real rush in those uh, early years of the 1970s and just before independence, there were very, very few Papua New Guineans who'd done six years of secondary schooling and I think there were only seven, just a few years before independence, only seven university graduates in the whole of the country. When, when I was um, a, a kid, Sean, it seemed like everyone's uncle or, or every second person's father had worked in Papua New Guinea or some people had spent half of their life living there. And I wonder, those links don't seem to be as strong now in, in current generations. And I wonder what the links are between... Australians and Papua New Guineans these days? Well, I've certainly, you know, reduced uh, significantly. Uh, Ian Kemish, who was one of our best um, High Commissioners in Papua New Guinea, he spent quite a bit of his childhood up there and uh, he puts it that there are sort of these, these totally two different tribes in Australia, those who actually have had some experience in PNG and are quite passionate about it and, and have had relations or something there. And then the vast majority of people who don't know the first thing about it and don't really care. Um, it's uh, my, my father, for instance, was up in uh, Papua New Guinea during the Second World War and, and won the Distinguished Service Order, the DSO. Um, so there, there were people who had connections through the Second World War because their you know, parents or grandparents fought there. There were, in the lead up to um, independence, there were thousands of Australians who worked in, in P&G. But a lot of that has, has fallen away now. And um, I, one of the things I think we could do better is actually commit more people to help Papua New Guinea in, in all sorts of different ways. The, the missions do some extraordinary work in, in PNG and there are other people extremely dedicated and, and working on things. For instance, the Kokoda Track Foundation is doing some terrific work in Papua New Guinea, but generally it's just disappeared from the Australian consciousness. And the PNG still remains um, Australia's sort of largest recipient of, of foreign aid. Is it, is it the fact that that money is not really being spent as well as it could be to, to foster those relationships and enduring connections? Look, uh, a certain amount of money is provided to encourage that. Uh, for instance, the Foreign Affairs Department gives uh, the Lowy Institute a certain amount of money to run a Melanesia or help run a Melanesia program and uh, each year they get 
young leaders from both Australia and Papua New Guinea together, you know, to, to talk about issues. So there are things being done, but it's a very it, it, it's, it's a fraught aid relationship, and that's got problems on both sides. On the Australian side, we're often confused about where we should spend the money and how we should spend it, and we're not really trust trusting of, of Papua New Guinea to spend it properly. And on the PNG side, there are all sorts of reservations and and difficulties. And so, you know, it, it's not an easy relationship. Um, but one of the people I interviewed for the papers, Kevin Burns, who's the former uh, mayor of, of Cairns, but has lived in PNG a long, long time and headed up their tourism body. And um, Kevin said one of the, one of the barbecue stoppers in Papua New Guinea amongst the expatriates is how effective is Australian aid really in, in terms of helping PNG. Yeah, and I think, I mean, you you, you raise um, lots of issues in this paper and we won't have time to, to deal with them all today, but um, there are some really positive and interesting things happening in PNG, particularly around free media, but also in music. And um, David Bridie is someone who's spent a lot of time in PNG and he broadcasts at this station. And um, so we have those connections um, through music also with Papua New Guinea. And I wonder if you see that, that these kinds of the, the growing media, uh, that music connection, the sport connection with Papua New Guinea might start to provide um, stronger links between Australia and, and um, PNG. Well, I certainly hope so. I mean, David it, it does terrific work um, with his uh, the, the foundation that he set up um, to try and encourage um, music in Melanesia and, and Indigenous music in Australia. And his connections are extremely strong. Um, on the sport issue, one of the the, the things I raise is uh, I know we're talking in Melbourne, but. Rugby league is a huge sport in Papua New Guinea, yet it's extremely difficult for Papua New Guinean footballers to actually get contracts with NRL clubs. And I point out in the paper that at the annual um, uh, inter, inter, well, the, the national sort of inter, inter-nation championship they have over one weekend, um, where Australia plays England, I think, and then or Australia plays New Zealand. Uh, Fiji plays Papua New Guinea and Samoa plays Tonga. Well, the entire Fijian, well, sorry, the entire Tongan and Samoan teams are NRL first grade players. There were only two in the Papua New Guinea team and, and half the, the, the Fijians were NRL players. And I raised the question of what, which one of these places was our former colony and why aren't there more Papua New Guineans? Playing, it's not as if there isn't the talent there. For instance, um, Will Genia, the, the Australian Wallabies halfback, is a Papua New Guinean, and uh, James Sigiaro, who plays for the Penrith Panthers, is a Papua New Guinean. But the talent is there. It's just that it's extremely difficult for Papua New Guineans to get into Australia, and that extends to the visa issue and and the seasonal employment. Um, Camp, uh, program that Australia is following. Far more Polynesians come in to Australia than, than people from Papua New Guinea. And um, as, as Carly mentioned, the other sort of positive, um, very positive aspect of Papua New Guinea is the, the functioning of the media. And we spoke uh, last year on the program to uh, someone from Tribe FM, the youth radio station that was sort of just starting up as part of the uh, National Broadcasting Corporation over there. Can you talk to us a little bit about the, the media landscape in Papua New Guinea? 
Yeah, look, there are two competing daily newspapers in um, Port Moresby, which, which go nationwide. That's the Post Courier, which is owned by News Limited. And I might just say, um, I think it's a great credit to News Limited that they've kept that paper going because it's not a great money spinner. Uh, for them, but um, News Limited have shown a commitment there, and and they've got some really really good journalists at, at the Post Courier. The the other newspaper is called the National, and although it's run by or owned by a Malaysian logging company, it actually does a really good job on everything except surprisingly logging. Um, then you've got various radio stations. You've got two television services that go. Uh, there's a new television uh, newsroom being established by a, uh, a fellow who used to be in Fiji. So the, the media in PNG is is very very lively, and uh, what is really lively in PNG is social media. And um, uh, one organisation called PNG Loop has actually set itself up as a uh, social media news service in Papua New Guinea, and it has a big following. And yet there's pretty much only one foreign correspondent there. Yeah, well, when I went up there first in 1974, I, I went on secondment to the National uh, Broadcasting Commission, as it was then, uh, from the ABC. But at that stage, there were six Australian journalists based in Port Moresby reporting daily for Australian news outlets. And um, up until about two years ago, that had been shrunk to two, and now it's down to one because Australian Associated Press pulled out. So the last Australian correspondent based in Papua New Guinea is the ABC correspondent, and I know how difficult it is for him to get uh, material use because when I was the correspondent there, if uh, items weren't appearing in the newspapers, um, then your chances of getting on programs like AM were, were significantly reduced. Oh, we're speaking with Sean Dorney. He's um, a former ABC correspondent, actually, in PNG, but uh, he's written an essay called The Embarrassed Colonialist, and it's published by the Lowy Institute. He's a non-resident fellow there. And in the time we've got left, um, Sean, I'd love to um, speak with you about um, Manus Island and also Nauru, and I think it's fair to say that those two... Uh, well, P Manus is obviously part of PNG, but they're those detention centres that um, Australia is running um, in on those uh, islands are in our former colonies and I, I wonder at that relationship whether it's playing into the, the fraughtness of our, our connections with PNG having that detention centre there on Manus. Yeah, well look, my wife is from Manus Island. She was a broadcaster up in PNG when we first met back in the 70s. Um, Pauline retains her PNG citizenship and she was furious uh, last year when um, some of the newspapers were reporting Manus as being Hell Island. Um, you know, where, where the detention centre is is the former Australian Navy base um, on Los Negros, which is a, a little island connected by the main island of Manus by a causeway. But uh, to describe Manus as Hell Island uh, is a long, long way from the truth. Um, but yes, you're right. The, the the detention centre issue has, you know, added another layer of complexity to the relationship. And I'm sure the the, the reporting in Australia on uh, the asylum seeker issue has painted Papua New Guinea in an extremely dark light. 
and um, you know there are a few people in Papua New Guinea who are a little annoyed with the Prime Minister Peter O'Neill having agreed uh, with Kevin Rudd that um, Papua New Guinea was such a dreadful place uh, no one seeking asylum in Australia would ever want to go there. Now, the the, the, the media image of, of Papua New Guinea has certainly helped stop the boats, I suppose, but uh, I don't think it's done much for Papua New Guinea's image. And just before we, we let you go, Sean, um, you speak a bit about uh, Julie Bishop as being someone who kind of genuinely has shown interest in uh, engaging with Papua New Guinea. Do you see this happening in the years ahead? Look, Julie Bishop is engaged. Um, she, I mean, when the Australian aid budget was, was slashed um, last year, um, she ensured that uh, Papua New Guinea didn't suffer as much. I think we cut back our aid to Indonesia by something like 40%, but P&G only had a, a minor uh, cut in its aid. Um, she also had family connections in P&G. Her sister worked up there in the 70s and uh, I think one of her nieces went and uh, worked as a volunteer up in in the Highlands uh, a year or two ago. So Julie Bishop has an interest. On the other side of the picture, Richard Miles is also someone who's who's passionately interested in uh, Papua New Guinea. But there aren't too many more in the federal parliament um, who know very much about Papua New Guinea or, or pay a lot of attention to it. Even Julie Bishop's office um, couldn't arrange for her to d give me an interview for this paper. So although Julie Bishop herself um, is passionate about the place, uh, some in her office didn't think it was worthwhile arranging an interview uh, between her and me for this uh, lowy paper and I think that illustrates the whole problem. Uh, I wonder if that might change as PNG uh, starts to look to China <laughs> for, well, for project funding. Is, yeah, look, uh, China finds PNG as perplexing as we do. Um, they, they've got a mine going up there and they've had all sorts of, of, of problems with it. But PNG is certainly looking to other countries and um, there is you know, a, a growing belief in Papua New Guinea that their future is more tied to countries like China and Indonesia and, and uh, the countries of Asia than it is to Australia. Very interesting. And um, thank you so much for spending time with us on Triple R, Sean. And, um, yeah, we commend your essay to our listeners and um, you can get links to that on the Lowy Institute website. And um, hopefully we'll talk to you again. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And Sean Dorney there, uh, he's a journalist and he's a, um, currently a non-resident fellow at the Lowy Institute and writing on all things PNG. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.